Russia's not going to go away. It's going to be a very powerful neighbor. But this idea of multiple neighborhoods is very much stronger now that Russia has no monopoly on influence in any of these countries. And they're all looking for counterbalancing moves, counterbalancing influences, hedging their bets, looking for different options. And seeing that Russia is weak, they're also speaking their mind a bit more. And some of them even fairly openly criticizing Russia now in public. Coming to you from the banks of the Danube, you are listening to the Vienna Coffee House Conversations podcast with me, Ivan Vejvoda. Welcome to our digital salon at Vienna's Institute for Human Sciences, the IWM. In each episode of Coffee House Conversations, I'll be joined by Europe's Futures Fellows and leading thinkers from around the world. We'll be probing their research through discussion, challenge, and exploration. Listen to us as we explore the ideas, debates, and encounters that will shape the future of democracy in Europe and Europe's relationship with the world at large. In this podcast, I talk to Europe's Futures Fellow, Thomas Duval. Tom is a senior fellow at Carnegie Europe, specializing in Eastern Europe and the Caucasus region. In the 2010s, for five years, Tom Duval worked for Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C., and before that, he worked extensively as a journalist in both print and for the BBC radio. From 93 to 97, he worked in Moscow for the Moscow Times, Times of London, and The Economist, specializing in Russian politics and the situation in Chechnya. He has authored a number of books, and I will just list the themes on the Caucasus, on the Armenians and Turks in the shadow of genocide, a book on Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, which is, again, unfortunately, in the limelight, called The Black Garden, Armenia and Azerbaijan Through Peace and War, and with Carlotta Gaul, a prize-winning book on Chechnya, Calamity in the Caucasus. Tom, welcome, and thank you very much for being with us. It's very good to have you here in Vienna. Ivan, it's uh, great to see you and great to be back in Vienna. So let's remind our, our listeners that the Soviet Union dissolved 32 years ago in December 91, uh, fell into 15 different parts, of which Russia is one. I won't name them all, but the blocks of countries are the Baltics, the Caucasus countries, and what we colloquially call the Stans. We are living in the shadow of the Russian invasion and aggression on Ukraine, and the world and Europe in particular, security architecture has completely changed. We are around a year into this uh, terrible, violent aggression. And so the perspectives on things has certainly changed regarding earlier situations. And I'll come back to the fact that the European Union had a policy on what the European Union called the Eastern Partnership, the Russians called the Near Abroad. So in light of all this, what is the post-Soviet space for you today? Well, I mean, that's such a big question. And it's really what I'm trying to study in my Europe's Future Fellowship with you at, at IWM. I mean, I think the broad answer is extremely fragmented. 30 years of independence mean that we've, we've basically got 15 
sovereign states, three of them obviously the Baltic states, very early headed in a strong westerly direction, joined both the EU and NATO, and then Russia and the other 11 in more of a grey zone, but certainly sovereign states. And I think there's a mental issue here, which some people still struggling with to, to see these states through a Russian lens. You read articles describing them as Russia's backyard. Well, maybe they, they are Russia's backyard in one sense, but they're lots of other people's backyards as well. So a kind of regional diversity now to those states, you know, Central Asia, very strong links to China for them. The major security issue prior invasion was definitely and, and still is Afghanistan. Then you've got South Caucasus, which has always been a kind of contested neighborhood, very, very diverse, three big nation states, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, but lots of smaller ethnic populations. And three, their former imperial powers, not just Russia, but Turkey and Iran, which are also still very influential, and also the European Union moving in there, and in in a way also China and, and Asian powers as well. And then, of course, you've got the Western three, which, again, very different now. Belarus, we saw that upsurge with the pro-democracy movement of 2020, which, you know, had that succeeded, I doubt there would have been a war in Ukraine, but unfortunately that w- was was suppressed. So they're sort of locked into the Russian camp, mostly against their will. Moldova, which has no border with Russia, has a border with the EU, small, poor, but also very Western-looking. And then, of course, Ukraine. So... Uh, a story of incredible diversity and fragmentation and multiple neighborhoods. And in a way, you know, the question which I think recurs to so many people who watch Russia and watch this part of the world is why did Putin invade in 2022, 30 years after the end of the Soviet Union? These states had three decades to develop and had developed into fully sovereign nations. In 1992, this would have been much more logistically feasible. But 30 years on, it's almost as though he himself is trying to stop the clock, but stop the clock much too late, you know, 30 years too late. Ukraine clearly is the biggest neighbor of both the European Union and of Russia, nominally 44 million people. Although politically, clearly, Ukraine, after the Orange Revolution in 2004, opted for the European road, confirmed by the events in the Maidan in 2014. And clearly with what happened with the Russian invasion is that there was an awakening of the European Union, I would say, to its own responsibilities regarding countries who desired sovereignly to join the Western camp, the European Union. Ukraine and Moldova became full candidates for European Union membership in June 2022. Georgia, a potential candidate. And so my question would be, the EU initiated the Eastern Partnership back in May 2009 to bring closer these countries based on their own desire to join. How has that Eastern Partnership fared until the moment of the invasion? And what has happened to it afterwards? Historically, the the Eastern Partnership started, I think, with the three Western countries, Ukraine, Moldova, and Belarus. And then the Russia-Georgia War 2008 meant the EU could not afford to ignore Georgia and, and the South Caucasus in general. And 
people often ask these six countries, they don't have so much in common, do they? They all have different trajectories. I guess the Eastern Partnership had a kind of rationale in the sense that if you have six countries, that puts them on the map, puts them on the agenda in the way that one or two can't be. So you had big heads of state coming to the Eastern Partnership summits, allocating money. So that generated a certain momentum. But obviously, Eastern Partnership, as we all know, it was a kind of compromise. It was basically, we're not going to give you a membership perspective, we're going to give you many other sweeteners instead, technological assistance and infrastructure and civil society forums. And, and that relationship access. had this complicated name, deep and comprehensive. Exactly, yeah, and, yeah exactly. Um, and, and yeah, free trade agreements and so on. It was a way of muddling through, and these countries, obviously, all of them had lots of governance and corruption issues, which were, you know, much more severe than, than say, even the Western Balkans. So there was... You know, powerful arguments within the EU about these countries are not ready for a membership perspective. But obviously, the Ukraine war has suddenly changed everything in the sense that suddenly Western Europe cannot afford to ignore this region anymore. It has to think geopolitically, has to give those who want to join a perspective. And, and that's basically the three countries, Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia with a bit of an asterisk because Georgia has done some democratic backsliding recently, although actually for a long time it was the leader. That is a huge, again, mental transformation, but one which again, when you're in Brussels, people are still a bit wary, a bit cautious about confronting what it actually means. Yes, there's definitely a friction between the the rules of EU accession based on merit and achieving the rule of law, to put it very simply, in democratic institutions, and on the other hand, the geopolitical urgency. And I would say that the EU has been positively thrust into a greater geopolitical role, even though rhetorically it has been there. But now it's confronted with this very concrete situation. And of course, I think a sign of that is, however symbolic and maybe minimal to some, the fact that the European Commission went in its full numbers, led by Ursula von der Leyen, to Kiev a couple of weeks ago and sat in Kiev with the government and President Zelensky to demonstrate the willingness. And on the other hand, the Ukrainian leadership has shown some steps in addressing some corruption issues in a pretty dramatic way in the midst of a war. Obviously, very difficult for them to focus on issues that are not actually trying to liberate themselves. All of these countries, the three, say, frontrunners, Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia, have all had ups and downs in their movement towards the EU. There's been a desire to, to join NATO, clearly, in some of them. Belarus fell off the map. It is in a union state with Russia, which definitely shows that it's the outlier on all this. But coming to Georgia, why is it, as you just said, having been a front runner for a while, what happened there that didn't happen in Ukraine and Moldova? Well, it's a lot about domestic politics and about leadership. I've written a lot about Georgia over the years. I think Georgia's long-running malady is polarization between a government and an opposition, which have this very macho politics in which you don't agree to disagree, you try and destroy the other main party. And 
these two big personalities in Georgia for the last 12, 13 years. Bidina Ivanishvili, the richest man in Georgia, who's the kind of founding father of the current ruling party, Georgian Dream, and former president Mikhail Saakishvili, who's now in jail, unfortunately, in, in very poor health. But I mean, they between them bear a lot of responsibility for this polarization, which has kind of sucked a lot of the oxygen and energy out of a real reform process. Clearly, Georgian Dream is a very problematic oligarch-run party. I don't think Ivanishvili is an agent of Russia, but I think he tries to play all sides, and that means not offending Russia as far as he's concerned. But again, if Saakashvili was to come to power, I don't know. I'm sure it would be a bit better, but not not, not a lot in the sense that a very personality-based politics, you know, abuse of the judicial system and the courts to, to prosecute your enemies, I'm sure that would be employed by him uh, as well. But, you know, in the middle is a lot of Georgian society, civil society, civil service professionals who are excellent, who are really good, very committed, very professional, but just haven't been given the space within this political environment in the last decade, unfortunately. Russia has tried to keep some connection at various levels with these countries. And so there's an alphabet soup of organizations, the Commonwealth you mentioned at the beginning of independent states, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, and the Eurasia Economic Union. What has been the fate of those attempts of Russia to somehow keep them close. In the 90s, I think when Russia was more democratic, there were all those economic links and more cultural links as well. I think these institutions had a chance, particularly the Commonwealth of Independent States, although I think there were different conceptions in Moscow and in the capitals about how to see this. I think that was the vision of Yevgeny Primakov, who is regarded in the West as a bit of a hawker as prime minister and foreign minister, but actually that was his vision, was 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 very much more institutional, not using force, using integration of sovereign states. That was the vision then, a kind of institutionalized near abroad. But then under Putin, it became much more instrumentalized and it became much more about threat and use of hard power and then use of the military power, as we saw in South Ossetia in 2008, in Crimea and, and Donbass, and obviously now in Ukraine. And the result is a lot of countries stay members of these organizations. But for, you know, take Armenia, which is a member of all three. The Armenian government is clearly sees no utility in membership of the Eurasian Economic Union. It doesn't share a land border uh, with Russia. It's now in- incurs sanctions for links with Russia. It appealed to the Collective Security Treaty Organization when uh, Azerbaijan made incursions over its border, and there was no positive response because Moscow was playing both sides in that dispute. And so Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan says pretty openly, what's the point of the CSTO? What's the point of this if we don't get anything from it? He says it maybe a bit more loudly, and others, in, I think, in Central Asia certainly think the same. So it's basically Russia over the years has over relied on hard power and has failed to use all the soft power of trade of the Russian language that it could have used. And even that is now compromised, even the the Russian language, which should have been a fairly neutral Tool. tool and resource. Millions of people speak it. Even now, that is compromised and people are turning away from that. So it's it's almost, you know, Putin is definitely, in that sense, his own worst enemy. 
to summarize very simply, there's a clear weakening of the reach that Russia has into those countries where it did have some influence. Obviously, we're not talking about Baltics or Caucasus. Yeah, I mean, and uh, Russia's not going to go away. It's going to be a very powerful neighbor. But this idea of multiple neighborhoods is very much stronger now that uh, Russia has no monopoly on influence in any of these countries. And they're all looking for counterbalancing moves, counterbalancing influences, whether it be from Turkey in the case of Azerbaijan or EU, obviously, or indeed China. So all of these countries are hedging their bets, looking for different options. And seeing that Russia is weak, they're also speaking their mind a bit more, and some of them even fairly openly criticizing Russia now in public. Let's dwell on China for a second. You mentioned it at the beginning and now again. Clearly, this is the neighborhood of the Stans. What do you see, apart from what you just said, that there's a wait and see? Is there anything more visible in China's policy towards this particular area? I mean, there's clearly the energy issue, gas, oil, things like that. Is there anything more beyond that? I don't think there's anything more beyond that. But what there is already is pretty powerful. Pipelines now running in from Central Asia into China. It's a massive economic reach. And another interesting development is that there are basically the three routes between China, the, the kind of industrial powerhouse, and Europe. There's overland route via Russia, which is obviously compromised by the war. Some of it is still working, but a lot isn't, particularly by rail. There's the maritime route by the Suez Canal, which is the cheapest, but also the longest. And you know, as we saw a couple of years ago, even the Suez Canal can get blocked. Mm-hmm. And then there's this third route, which is logistically and geographically the most difficult. It's across Central Asia, the Caspian Sea, through the South Caucasus, and then across the Black Sea or into Turkey to Europe. Now, that's only traditionally had about 1% of global freight traffic. It was actually already going up, but the Ukraine war has pushed that up massively. You've got massive queues of freight traffic, of trucks in Georgia and Azerbaijan now as a result. So if that can be upgraded, that suddenly becomes an alternative route for China into Europe via Central Asia and Caucasus. And that's already happening. I mean, it's, it's never going to take over, but it's, it's going to, I think, become a significant freight and, and transit route. And there's been a sort of a positive push comes to shove on the basis of the Russian invasion between Turkey and Armenia now with the earthquake that this famous bridge and border crossing has been opened after I don't know how many decades. Indeed, it'll be, I think, 30 years in April that that Turkey-Armenia land border was closed. This is an issue I've spent many years working on. And obviously, it was a massive tragedy, biggest tragedy in decades, this earthquake. But if one small good thing has come out of it, it's that suddenly there's aid coming from Greece as well. But this border opening uh, with humanitarian aid coming from Armenia, I think once that border has opened, it's much harder to close again. Let me take you back to Chechnya, because it's not a story that one talks about very much. It has come back because 
people have said, well, you see, what was the way of waging war in Chechnya is basically what is now being done as brutally, if not more, in Ukraine. Chechnya tried to become independent. There were several attempts by Russian leadership to quell it. It was brutally quelled. What is the state in Chechnya today? Yeah, I mean, that's a very tragic story with some strong parallels and some quite significant differences as well. I mean, the significant difference, obviously, is that Chechnya, you know, was not independent, you know, was part of, of course, yeah. Russia, um, was not a sovereign state. And indeed, having been to Chechnya before the war broke out there, I saw so-called independent Chechnya, and it wasn't a serious enterprise. It was a bit of a, unfortunately, a kind of mafia little statelet with all the economic and business links open to Moscow, but self-rule and self-rule by this not very pleasant regime there. It wasn't a great advertisement, unfortunately, for Chechen freedom. The, the Chechens certainly deserved some kind of freedom, but the independence I saw was not the answer. And then Russia, through two very, very brutal wars, suppressed that Chechen movement. And now you have this, for more than 15 years now, Ramzan Kadyrov, this warlord, who basically is independent in the way he runs his local affairs, but loyal to Putin otherwise. So he has a Russian flag over Grozny, but then uses all his bandits, his armed men, to fight with the Russians in Ukraine. So a very bizarre dynamic there. For me, I guess the lesson is really about how Russia has different maladies or sicknesses. And this kind of Impunity and violence is the, for me, is the constant theme. It's this inability to get away from this resort to extreme violence, which is what I saw in Chechnya against people who were supposedly Russian citizens. This extreme violence, and and you know, you talk to Russians about these horrible atrocities you've seen in places like Bucha, and some of them, more honest Russians, say, unfortunately, this is a violence within our own society as well. If you give Russian soldiers' impunity and let them run amok, they would not necessarily have done anything much different in the Russian suburb as they did in Ukraine. That's the terrifying thing. I think we maybe sometimes overemphasize, and this is one of the themes actually of my project here, mm-hmm. overemphasize the ideology. I think some of these actions are not about a thought-out ideology, a doctrine, a creed. It's about power and violence. It's about the power of the leader. It's about the power of the state. And the leader is the state. And it's about imposing that power and suppressing anyone who doesn't get with the project, whether they be internally or externally, with violence. I think that, for me, would be the description in a very crude form of the war in Ukraine. Many decades ago, I I studied political science in Paris, and one of my professors was Hélène Carrère d'Ancos, who then, four or five decades ago, talked about the Soviet Union and the dangers coming from these republics, whether it's the Ingushetias or Chechnyas, and the Islamic part of the Soviet Union, which leads me to a question as we come towards the end of our conversation, and that is there's a lot of what I would call loose talk about the fact that Russia will fall apart in the not-too-distant future, given all the challenges that we mentioned, no need to, to enumerate them, whether Putin will fall or stay, etc. 
How realistic do you think this is, that there is a danger for this enormous country of 11 time zones to fall apart or not? I don't see, uh, well, uh, certainly at the moment, Russian disintegration as a very likely scenario. I base that a lot on my experience of having watched Chechnya over many years, a place that had a kind of certain historical trauma, Stalinist deportation. It had a ethnic and demographic majority of Chechens over Russians. It had as even a e- little economic base. It had its own oil industry. And it had a foreign border with Georgia and also with Azerbaijan. And yet, despite that, they were not able to mobilize for independence. I don't see any other part of Russia being able to repeat that or even wanting to repeat that, to be honest. I think to decolonize Russia, it's it's a nice kind of romantic sounding phrase, but actually, I don't think it's going to happen. I think these people deserve freedom, but freedom of a different sort. They deserve some kind of democracy and the centre getting off their back, but not decolonization sense of splitting away. And I do think that's actually quite dangerous talk, because I mean, if we're talking about private armies suddenly splitting up Russia, what happens to all the nuclear weapons, what happens to all these massive conventional weapons in, in Russia, I think we've all maybe perhaps too much forgotten one of the bloodiest episodes in Russian history in the last century was the civil war. You know, I think some kind of civil war, that's something I think to, to, to be a bit more cognizant of, to watch closely and, and not to, to welcome. I think there's also just, you know, final point on this, there's a kind of philosophical basis to this. If, if we want to say that what we want out of, at the end of this is a free and sovereign Ukraine within internationally respected borders, I think we should tell the Russians that this is a universal principle being applied and we apply that principle to them as well, that they have nothing to fear Um, We have a problem with Putin and his war and his government and his weapons and his violence. But we don't have a problem with the sovereign Russia within internationally recognized borders. And indeed, this imperial aggression, trying to reconquer territories that were part of the imperial pre-communist Russia or of the Soviet Union, and you rightly mentioned the invasion of Georgia itself, Russia has its foot in, in these three countries that are two candidates, Ukraine and Moldova, and and Georgia potentially, with these territories in Moldova, Transnistria. We mentioned South Ossetia and Abkhazia, and of course, the territories that Russia took in 2014, and principally Crimea. So whatever the outcome, and hopefully the Ukrainians can successfully regain full sovereignty over their territory, it remains that Russia will clearly not desist from trying to be a troublemaker and a spoiler in these areas. So as a final question, maybe changing tack a bit, but not fully, since your family harks from Odessa, from what is today Ukraine, the family spread out throughout Europe, to came to Vienna and to Paris, and of course suffered terribly as a prominent Jewish family here in Vienna with the Nazi aggression, Hitler's Anschluss of Austria, and you have recently regained, rightly so, your Austrian citizenship. Tell me a bit how you feel with all this uh, complexity of... It's it's a true European story, let me just put it that way. Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, I'm enjoying the fact that I'm an Austrian citizen. It's rather unfamiliar. My German is extremely basic. I'm working on it, but I'm working on it from a very 
low level. My wife, ironically, doesn't get the Austrian citizenship because she's not a blood descendant. Her German is much better. My daughter, who's 16, is, is learning German. So yeah, it's a good feeling to have that part of our ancestry, our heritage, recognized by the Austrian state. And I'm kind of touched by the way the various Austrian officials I meet and refer to it are welcoming. Obviously, it doesn't detract from the terrible trauma that my grandmother and her family went through. But that was a previous generation. And I think the current generation is doing a fairly good job of acknowledging all that was done. But yes, you know, for me, as a Russian speaker, who started going to Odessa back in 1994. And I have a kind of half lot of writing, which one day I will publish on the family in Odessa. I did some work in the archives there. That's even closer to me because of um, getting to know Odessa, although I don't think I'll ever become a Ukrainian <laughs> citizen. But certainly, it's an extraordinary story of a Jewish family who were kind of bigger than any borders, who came from the heartland of Ukraine, became wealthy in Odessa thanks to the grain trade, then moved to Vienna and Paris, became fabulously wealthy, and then basically lost it all in the two world wars and, and the Anschluss and the Holocaust, and then was scattered across the world. But it's a heritage I'm obviously proud of. Um, and I like the feeling that it's a heritage which enables me to have more than one national identity, but, but several. And indeed, I mean, through all the horrific tragedy that many families like yours went through under the Nazi and fascist regimes, this individual story shows that there can be, in the end, maybe after several generations, some reckoning with the past and some justice, however small that justice may be, without forgetting, as you rightly said, the horrible things which we need to keep reminding ourselves as we witness again another horrific aggression yeah. and violence and, and invasion. Yes, I, think, I, I do think history goes in cycles, and, and sometimes the cycles are longer than you know, a certain individual can see. My grandmother, obviously, is sad that she didn't live to see this. My father's still alive, I'm glad to say. He just turned 94, and he remembers... I was actually at the Palais of Russie, um, you know, at Schotten, Schotten Tour. Which is your family's Yeah, Paris yeah, yeah. I was there Vienna. yesterday. The foundation who runs it welcomed us back. And my son, Theo, who's seven, had never been there. Theo was looking out the window, looking at the trams. He was more interested in the view of the trams oh, than of, of the ceilings. But then I remembered that my father in the 1930s had, had stayed there. And he also remembered staying there and looking out at the trams, probably around the same same age. So, so you know, history does go in these cycles. Often the trauma is too great for one generation and they suffer unjustly, but then the next generation gets a little bit of it back at least. Absolutely. Tom, thank you so much. This was a very enlightening conversation on, on very difficult and complex subjects. I hope we get a chance to talk again in the not-too-distant future. It's great to talk to you as always, Ivan. That concludes this episode of Vienna Coffeehouse Conversations, the podcast brought to you by the Europe's Futures Programme at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Europe's Futures is a programme of impact, ideas and action for a Europe that rises to the challenges of the 21st century and is undertaken in collaboration with the Erste Foundation. To find out more about our work and research, visit 
europesfutures.eu.